Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, one of the beauties of expository preaching, which is uh, going through books of the Bible verse by verse as we are doing through the book of Hebrews, is that uh, occasionally you run into passages that you would never preach uh, otherwise. You, you wouldn't look at this and go, oh, that'll, that'll be fun. Uh, no, typically you would choose passages that, that kind of, you know, uh, are, are easier to preach. Well, this is one of those cases where you run into a passage of Scripture that uh, requires us to do some work, but I think it's very, very beneficial work. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 3 this morning, and going through, let's see, uh, yeah, we're going to go through verse 17, I said 13, Tom, but 17, therefore, uh, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word, you thought you were going to get away with it. Therefore consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for, the holy, for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, he, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that your spirit would be our instructor, our teacher, uh, our guide, Father, not in just simply uh, passing information onto us uh, from this text, but, Father, the deep teaching that gets into our heart and to our minds and overflows into our lives. Father, this is, is a word that helps us to see uh, the world very differently. Unlike the world sees itself and sees the things of it but father this this is a word for those who are willing to grow into maturity which i hope is all of us so i pray father help us to see help us to hear and help us father to go and do we ask this in jesus name amen Many years ago, I was uh, a youth minister, and uh, by the way, I think that, that it should be required of every pastor to be a youth minister uh, at some point before they begin to be a pastor. But as a youth minister, when Deb and I had Austin, our, our, our son, uh, those were some very difficult years, and yet they were probably the most memorable uh, times of our lives. 
In those days, we had teenagers that would come to our house literally every single day, every night. We would work all day. We would get home. They would be like at the door. And we had this happen every single day. And once Austin was born, well, that began to kind of be a challenge with a newborn. And those kids, I mean, it was kind of cool because those kids loved to be around Austin. They loved to be around a baby until until he needed a diaper change or until he became fussy. And then all of a sudden it was time to go, right? Then they seemed to disappear. Uh, Deb and I joke that, that uh, having kids over around a, a newborn and dirty diapers and a fussing baby was a great deterrent to sex before marriage. Uh, it was better than the true love weight campaigns that, that was going on around the same time. Because here's the thing about parenting, right? Parenting is, is not simply about having babies. Parenting is about raising babies. Having them is just the beginning. The goal of parent, parenting begins when they are born. But after that, moms and dads are responsible to try to turn them into functional human beings uh, over the course of the next 18 plus years, 18 plus 40. And because we love our kids, uh, we, we want them to flourish, right? We want our kids to flourish. We want them to do well. We want them to thrive. We want them to be responsible and respectable and, and good people. We all want that. But even more than that, I think, as, as, as any parent will tell you, we want our kids to have joy. We want them to be happy in life. And most of all, we want them to have peace with God. We want them to have a relationship with God. We want them to walk joyfully, but to walk joyfully with Christ. Well, the Bible describes uh, the relationship between God and believers in Christ as a father and his sons and daughters. It's the same description that we see between parents, between us and God. And because of that, uh, we, we know that uh, even more than as a parent, we want our children to blossom and to flourish. God desires that even more with his children. So God the Father is a warm, affectionate, loving, caring Father, which describes a healthy relationship, which is what God wants for all of us. And in the same way that any good father wants their sons and daughters to flourish, our Heavenly Father is perfect in His desire for His children. You see, God didn't just simply want to have kids he wanted to raise them. He wanted to raise them. And he wanted to do so by making us holy and good and joyful. Now, if we were saying this theologically, we could say it like this. Theologically, we could say that justification is God having kids and sanctification is God raising his kids. So we see that in life and we see that in the scriptures between our relationship with God. And we all know because we are born, all born, with a sinful nature and because we live in a fallen world, right? discipline is a necessary part of, of raising kids. It's just part of, of the deal. And the same thing is true of the Christian life. God's purpose begins when we are born again, but he wants us to thrive. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to grow up into responsible, respectable, mature, Christ-like adults. He wants us to be holy, to reflect God's character to the rest of the world. But the journey to maturity can never come without discipline. That's true in the kids we're raising. That's true in the kids that God's raising. To get our kids from, from where they are to where we want them 
to be is impossible without discipline. It's impossible. Uh, to not discipline our kids is the, to allow them to live unhindered and unhinged according to their sinful nature. But the idea of discipline kind of uh, leaves us a little cold these days. The idea especially of, of spanking our kids kind of leaves us a little uncomfortable and to kind of take that and apply it over to God the Father spanking his kids, well, that's even more uh, a little uh, uncomfortable. In fact, we we're appalled at the idea of it. Inflicting pain on a, a child in an age where it seems that so many children are often abused makes us cringe. In fact, there are over 60 countries, 60 countries, very diverse countries, as diverse as Israel and North Korea. 60 countries who have banned spanking children. It's banned in those particular countries, right? The USA was standing. You can still spank your kid here. And I think that's because, uh, historically, too many parents have used discipline to punish their children instead of train their children. And there's a huge difference in those things. Uh, perhaps you grew up on, on a, a, a home that was very strict and there was a lot of discipline, but the discipline never felt really loving to you. It always just felt like you were punished for everything you did wrong. And so trying to see God's discipline is very difficult for you because you're always seeing it through that lens of how you grew up. But we need to understand that God does not discipline like us that way. He, he disciplines us uh, from the state, the point of wanting us to flourish. Now we're all familiar with the scripture that says, spare the rod, what? Spoil the child, right? Can anybody tell me where that scripture is? Proverbs? No. It's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. In fact, it came, it didn't even come about to the 1660s. It was uh, in a poem that was written by a guy by the name of Samuel Butler. 1660. That is not a, a, a scriptural passage. Here's what you do find in the Bible. You find Proverbs 13, 24, which says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him diligent is diligent to discipline him. That's, that's scripture. You say, well, isn't that kind of the same thing? Well, no, not, not exactly, right? Because the word that is translated here as rod in the Hebrew is uh, the same word as staff, as in a, sh a shepherd's staff. Think about what we read earlier in Psalm 23. For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, the rod and the staff are exactly the same tool. It's the same thing. It's a shepherd's staff. So instead of picturing uh, a red-faced father with a paddle, when you think of discipline, the Bible wants us to think of a shepherd with a staff in his hand. Now, a staff has a crook on one end, and the purpose of the crook was to, to pull sheep away from danger, to reach out, to grab hold of them, to pull them away from, from harm, the edge of a cliff. The other end of the staff was called the rod. And the point of that was not to beat the sheep, but to beat off anything that was after the sheep. It was to protect the sheep from predators. So whoever, according to the passage, spares the rod, Tom, and go back to the passage there. Uh, whoever spares the rod, it says, hates his son. Well, that makes a lot more sense when you understand the fact that it's saying whoever does not protect 
the son, or when it says son, we're talking about children, sons and daughters. Whoever spares the rod basically is giving their kids over to the wolves. That's, that's not very loving. Right? That's the idea. Well, you know, whoever does that hates their son. Whoever is not fending off the wolves from attacking them, whoever is not keeping them from going over the edge of the cliff, pulling them back, well, obviously that's, that's someone who doesn't love their kids if you don't care. But to contrast is the one who disciplines diligently. The one who does pull them back to safety. The one who does protect them. So that's what we mean when we talk in the Bible about the subject of discipline. God is perfect in love and he disciplines his children like a good shepherd, not like an angry dad. Well, here in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is addressing a group of believers who have gotten too close to the edge. Right? They've gotten very close to the edge in their life. Uh, they're on the edge of the cliff because they're fixing to go off and they're about to return back to their old way of life. They've been following Jesus all this time, but now following Jesus has been rather difficult. And so they are tempted now to go over the edge, which means basically that they want to return back to their old way of life under the law, trying to please God by being good enough, which nobody can do. And so they're on the edge of disaster. So the writer points them to the gracious hand of God's discipline that is at work in them right now, pulling them away from eternal harm. That's the idea of the passage. As has been the pattern throughout the entire book of Hebrews, the writer directs our attention as well as their attention to Jesus. Everything that he teaches in the book of Hebrews has to pass through the lens of Jesus. And so we find that here, verse 3 through 7. Consider him, him being the founder and perfecter of our faith, Christ the Lord. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved or chastised by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? God the Father wants to raise up sons and daughters uh, that look like his son, that look like Jesus. Right? And, and, and his son is a pattern for all sons and daughters, all of his sons and daughters. That's the goal. He wants them to look like Jesus. Jesus is the goal. And so God the Father is going to do everything to, to make that goal a reality. But he says to the, these people, you know, you're suffering because you have a goal. Your goal is not simply to be born, but to be raised. But at this point, you have not resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. What in the world does that mean? Well, basically, remember, he's comparing them to Jesus. He's going, well, okay, we're going to become like Jesus, right? Well, to become like Jesus, you have to consider the fact that Jesus died on a cross. And if you're going to become like him, uh, you're obviously not there yet because this is the pinnacle of what it means to be like Jesus. You have not shed your blood yet the way that he did. Jesus was the suffering servant. How can you expect to be like him without suffering? So these suffering saints are reminded that the scriptures address them as sons. What you're going through right now is part of the process of, uh, that happens to sons and daughters. Every legitimate son or daughter is disciplined. Every one. 
And so discipline becomes, therefore, a tool of the Heavenly Father that he uses to make us more like Jesus. And what he does is, he, like a good shepherd, he pulls us away from the desires of the flesh, from the things that kill us, and he wards off anything that gets in the way of our growing into Christ's likeness. And so discipline, his discipline shows that we are in God's household, that we are his children, that we are legitimate children of God. If you do not receive the Lord's discipline, that's a problem. The Lord's discipline's not the problem. The lack of it's the problem. And when we experience the Lord's discipline, we are not in a courtroom, but we are in a home. We're in a home. Sons and daughters. God disciplines us. Not to punish us, but to train us. Not to punish us for sin. Romans 8.1 spells that out. Therefore, there is now in Christ no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? The, the punishment for our sin has already been dealt with at the cross. It's been dealt with for good. So the purpose of discipline is, is not punishment. The purpose of discipline is to correct, to protect, and to prepare. It is training in the school of God's righteousness. Frederick Lee, he says this. He said, God does not punish our sins in the legal sense. That he already did fully at Calvary. The chastisements he brings on his people are to be understood as the loving corrections of a merciful and tender-hearted father. The Apostle Paul, uh, I think, helps us here. He uses three images of the Christian in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that I think help us to see the importance of discipline in, in the life of, of the believer. Uh, look at the passage. I know it's a little lengthy, but it's so great. Uh, when you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All right, he wants us to be strengthened by grace. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So keep this thing going, right? Pass this on. Pass it on. That's what parents do. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him an athlete is crowned unless is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Thinking over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So we have this, these three images, these three metaphors for the Christian life, and all of them relate to the subject of discipline. Think of the soldier. He says, "Suffer." As a good soldier. A soldier suffers through discipline. Right? They get up at the crack of dawn. Revelate. Time to get up. They make their beds. They make their beds so tight that a quarter has to flip off of it. Right? It's got to bounce. Their boots have to be shined. Their weapons have to be spotless, clean. What happens if it's not? Drop down and give me 20. Right? There's discipline. They have to march in perfect order at the cadence of their superior officer. Everything has to be in step. When they get out of line in any level, well, then they have to run, they have to do push-ups, they have to clean the latrines, they have to peel potatoes. Why? Why do they have to suffer that kind of precise, strict discipline? Because they're being trained for a battle. Their survival in battle depends on their discipline before they get there. These, these sergeants, they may come across as, as angry and mean, but at their very heart, they're trying to protect these men's lives and training them to protect one another's lives. What looks like cruelness is actually a form of, of grace, a form of love. 
Next is the athlete. The athlete. Right? Consider and think about the image that we find at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. We saw this last week. You know, Let's run the race that is marked out for us. So athlete is kind of part of that discipline. You can't run well and compete well and not be disciplined. There's just no way. An athlete has to train. An athlete has to get in shape, has to eat right, has to practice on a regular basis, has to rest well. It's certainly not pleasant at the moment, at the time. Man, I, I remember running high school track uh, back in the day, and I was a sprinter. I'm not a long-distance guy. I could run, you know, 100 yards straight, fast, and that was about it. I was a sprinter, but my coach insisted that I would run long distances as well. And I tried to explain to him, I don't do long distances. I'm a sprinter, right? You've got long distance guys, make them run. I don't know why the long distance guys never had to run sprints, but we had to run distance. He just said, shut up, Brown, and run. And, uh, man, there was more than one occasion, you know, Give me, give me a mile. Give me two miles. There's more than one occasion that, at the end of that thing, and not to be gross, but I, I threw up. I was sick from running like that. And you think to yourself, man, that, that's not pleasant at the moment. But you see, my coach wanted me to win. And the reason he wanted me to win is because he knew that I wanted to win. And, and, and his job was to get me ready to compete at a level to where I would achieve what I wanted to achieve. I hated long-distance running, but there was more to it than simply punishment. It was for my good. Tom Landry, the great cowboy coach, once said that his job was to get men to do what they didn't want to do in order to become what they wanted to be. How about the farmer? The farmer. Well, yeah, the farmer, the farmer has to get up before sunrise. He starts his chores at, uh, before the sun gets up. He has to milk the cows. He's got to feed the animals. He has to work hard. He's a hard, says the hardworking farmer. If he doesn't work hard, uh, other animals could die. If he doesn't work hard, he could use, uh, lose the entire year's crop. He has to continually work. And all of these give us a glimpse of how discipline forms us for our good. Even though when we're suffering through it, it's painful and difficult. It has a purpose that is always for our good. In fact, the English word discipline is related to the word disciple. A disciple is a follower who is being trained, who is being prepared, who is being formed. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're being trained into Christ's likeness. John 15 uses a whole nother word uh, for this idea of discipline. It uses the word pruning. Pruning. John 15, 1 through 2. Jesus said, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, pruning is not fun in the moment, right? It, inv it involves cutting away. But what is the point? What is the point? Well, he wants to take away everything that is not beneficial. Anything that's not producing fruit is going, well, let's just get rid of that. Let's get rid of that out of your life. And then let's take this part and let's, let's, let's shave it down. Let's cut it down. So why? That you will become even more fruitful. So there's some pain and then there's gain. That's discipline. That's the way it works. It's like a sculptor. God chisels away everything in us that doesn't look like Jesus. His aim is to separate us from anything that separates us from him. So his pruning may actually leave us with scars, but they're not the scars of a whip. 
They're the scars of a scalpel. They're the scars of surgery of God. God's wounding us in a, like a surgeon wounds a patient in order to heal him or her. The word here translated as discipline over and over again in Hebrews chapter 12 is a word used for teaching or training a child. It's a training word. Acts 7.22, Stephen used the word, same exact word, to talk about Moses being educated in all of the wisdom of Egypt. So he used the same word to talk about education, uh, of, of growing in knowledge. So discipline is used to educate, to train us. It's not for punishing. Discipline is always, when it is God's discipline, it is always redemptive. Always. In fact, he says in verse 10, his discipline, he disciplines us for our good. It's always for our good. Consider when the Apostle Paul was disciplined once. By the way, the pastor says that everybody's disciplined. If, if you're not disciplined, that, that means you're not a son or daughter of God. So even the Apostle Paul was disciplined. Check it out, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. What a fascinating passage. So here's Paul suffering his discipline. Paul's thorn in the flesh is not punitive, it is preventative. It was not punishment for pride, but a prevention against it. So we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was, right? What it consisted of. But I think the description kind of gives us a little bit of a heads up that whatever it was, it was, it was painful and it was nagging, right? Consistent. Imagine a thorn in the flesh. And then you get the idea of whatever this is. He calls this thorn, he calls it a gift. He says, it was given to me. It was given to me as a gift. And then he also said, but it was also a messenger of Satan. This is, this is fascinating to me. And so what God does here is he takes a messenger from Satan and he turns it into a gift from God because he uses it to free Paul from pride. The Bible says pride comes before the fall. He's like a shepherd. He's like a shepherd. He's pulling Paul back away from pride because pride will send him over the edge of the cliff. And so God uses Satan's messenger ultimately against Satan to defeat him. Isn't that awesome? Man, God is so amazing. We may wonder if everything bad happens to us is God's discipline. Man, one of the questions I was just pounding my head over in this passage was, well, how do I know if it's, if it's discipline from God or maybe it's an attack from Satan or maybe it's just because I live in a fallen world, but how do I differentiate between when bad things are happening which of those is the source? And what I discover from passages like that is this really doesn't matter, is that God uses everything. And he uses all of it for his purpose. It's Romans 8.28. God works together all things, everything that happens to you, for your good, for those who love the Lord. And so he has got a way of turning around everything and using it for our good in his glory. Well, well the, the, the good of discipline that we saw is that it allows us to be more fruitful, more fruitful, to, to flourish, to thrive, to share in God's holiness and to share in his joy. So I want to take the passage and I want to look at, at what kind of fruit that God is producing in us through his discipline. And I find four different things here in the passage. First thing is he, he gives us the fruit of maturity. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful 
rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit. A peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. So the Greek text uh, literally reads like this, that, that passage. If you just take it as it is in the Greek, it says, present discipline does not seem joyful, but of grief. In other words, discipline in the moment seems joyless, but its aim is to make us more joyful than we could possibly ever be without it. It's a temporary misery that produces an everlasting result, joyfulness that comes from specific fruit. It says it's a peaceful fruit. It yields a peaceful fruit. It produces a fruit that brings us peace. And the Hebrew word for, and Greek word for peace means to flourish. It's shalom, right? It means to thrive. So what kind of peaceable fruit does God's discipline produce? Well, the first, like I said, is the fruit of maturity. J.C. Ryle, one of my uh, heroes uh, from the 19th century, he says, By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. He weans us from the world. He makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, It is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Well, temporary misery produces long-term maturity. In verse 10, he disciplines us. It says that we may share in his holiness. And then again, in verse 11, he says, Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Holiness, righteousness. The word for discipline that we find in the passage is the Greek word gymnazo. What does that sound like? Gymnasium. Right? It's where we get our word for the gym. God's discipline is him taking us to the gym to exercise our soul. Now the word gymnazo literally means to train naked. We saw this last week. Points us back to verse 1 where we are encouraged to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. So again, we see discipline here as training. It's not punishment, it's training. Discipline empowers us to run as we're told to run in verse 1. So when you go to the gym, so I hear, when you go to the gym, you, you put your body through physical stress. Right? Your muscles burn, uh, you, you strain, you, you push yourself. It's not all that enjoyable. It's not that comfortable. Why? Why do you do that? Why does anybody do that? Why do you go through that temporary strain? Because you want to look better. You want to feel better. You want to perform better. You just want to be healthy. Right? Same principle applies to the soul. Discipline of God's gymnasium, gymnasium is an exercise of the soul for the results that you want to become the kind of person you want to be. Uh, things that we look in the mirror and are frustrated about, uh, can, we can deal with to some extent uh, by going to the gym and, and exercising and eating well. Now, there's only a certain level that we can do that because our bodies are aging. But with the soul, the soul is not aging. The soul's eternal. And so we can exercise that thing and becomes more and more beautiful before God. And that's the thing that God's looking at in each of us. So when we, we go to the gym for physical exercise, we, we basically have two things in mind. We're going to lose weight and we're going to gain muscle. Lose fat, gain muscle. That's the idea. When God's gym, it's the same thing. He wants us to lose the weight of sin and gain the muscle of holiness and righteousness. 
Jerry Bridges, uh, Jerry, uh, yeah, Jerry Bridges said this. It is the true. It is true that sometimes God disciplines us because of our persistence in a particular sin. But in the absence of specific and persistent sin, we can safely say that God's discipline addresses our overall character and the need to purge our character of its sinful tendencies. Lose fat, sin fat, gain holiness muscle. And whatever the case may be, God's work in training us and pruning us is a work of grace. Doesn't feel like grace, it always is. Paul Tripp calls it violent grace. Violent grace. Here's what he says. He says, our relationship with the Lord is never anything other than a relationship of grace. But that grace, that grace that we have been given isn't always comfortable grace. We all become way too comfortable with our sin, so God blesses us with violent grace, uncomfortable grace. God's grace isn't always comfortable because he isn't primarily working on our comfort. He's working on our character. With violent grace, he will crush us because he loves us and is committed to our restoration, deliverance, and refinement. And that is something worth celebrating, the fruit of maturity. Second, second fruit I see is the fruit of mutuality. The fruit of mutuality says we must work together and walk together through seasons of God's discipline. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be not put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see it to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble. By many that become defiled, so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, which means here comes the application, right? Since God disciplines, here's the application. Since God disciplines all of his sons and daughters for our good, let us stop languishing in our, our, our difficulties and gather together fully aware, encouraging one another through the discipline that we all receive. We've got to help one another. Help one another. It says, therefore, lift up drooping hands and strengthen your, your weak knees. That doesn't exactly sound, uh, drooping hands and weak knees doesn't sound like you're fixing to go to gym and have a great workout. Right? You don't know, walk into the gym. Oh, I'm going to work out today. You know, you, you do that, and I'm going, well, you are not going to have a good workout. I can tell right now you are not going to have a work, good workout. He said, no, have a different attitude. Change your attitude. Make straight paths for your feet. Strengthen what is lame. All right? Get it together here. Therefore, he says, therefore, lift up drooping hands. Why? Why? For our sake? No. For the sake of everyone else. Strive for peace, for peace with everyone or it could be for everyone. Strive that all of us thrive together. Nothing helps us do that like having another person saying, hey, hey, come on, let's go. Let's go to the gym. Let's go to the gym today. And when you go to the gym, right, if you're, if you're lifting weights, it's always a good idea to have a spotter. And I, back in the day when I used to, to do the, the heavy weights, uh, you get in trouble without a spotter real fast, right? A spotter. What's a spotter? Well, a spotter is there so that when the weight, like you're doing, you're trying to do 10 reps of, of 200, and uh, about rep 8, you barely get it up, right? But you got to get two more in. And so that next rep, I mean, you're just giving it everything. And, but the spotter, right, with two little fingers just going, come on, come on, you got this, you got this. And then that last rep, well, okay, we got this, right? You got to have a spotter when it comes to the Christian life because sometimes uh, things get too heavy to bear. 
and we don't have enough strength on our own to, to lift the burden. But a good spotter doesn't do the lifting for you. Right? It doesn't help you build muscle. A good spotter doesn't just sit there either, on the other hand, and watch you struggle. Right? You're the things across your neck, and they're all like going, come on, man, come on. No, you, you need someone who has the nice, perfect understanding and balance. A good spotter provides you just enough help when you need the help, enough encouragement so that together with you, you can still build strong muscles. That's the way it works. A good gym or church is not filled with a bunch of individuals looking in the mirror at how well they look. Right? It's a mutual community of people helping one another. A good church is filled with a bunch of spotters. The Holy Spirit is our main spotter, but the Spirit works through other people. Uh, uh, people, a church filled with spotters. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for holiness with everyone. The preposition meta means to do it with one another. Strive with one another. Right? See to it, it says, that no one, I love this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And we're all to make sure that, we, that no one slips through the crack, that we all obtain salvation through grace by faith. No one's slipping through the cracks. And that means we have to be quick to forgive one another. He says, don't, let, don't develop a, a root of bitterness. right? You know what a root of bitterness is? It, it, it's from unforgiveness. It's a deep weed that chokes out peaceful fruit. Unforgiveness robs you of flourishing. And often God's discipline comes at us, by the way, in the form of relational discomfort. Right? He brings difficult people into our lives a broken relationship for the purpose of making us more fruitful because it is through those things that we learn the hard work of forgiveness and love and patience and humility, right? restoration. There's only one way to learn that stuff. So also, going through seasons of the Lord's discipline together is, is always going to draw you closer it's always going to draw us closer together. Everybody gets closer. Nothing bonds a people together like suffering together. A church, people, a body has a shared stories. A shared story. We, we are, people are, are narrative in nature. We're, we love stories. Our story together includes, when we think about it over the history of our church, it includes times of of struggle, of painful times. We face crisis together. We face a flooded sanctuary together, right? We faced COVID together. We faced pain of, of people that we love leaving or moving off uh, together. We faced the loss of saints that we've loved through the years dying together. But it is that togetherness, that, that pain, that discipline that we have suffered through together that bonds us. Because we have a mutual story. Third thing I want you to see, the fruit of ministry. I think those are out of order, Tom. The fruit of ministry. Now, this one may not be obvious at first, but it is implied by the peaceful fruit of righteousness that you see in verse 11. Because righteousness, biblical righteousness, always includes justice. They go hand in hand. Righteousness is not displayed by simply moral goodness, right? But through seeking justice for the least of these. That's righteousness. People... Uh, prayer helps us to grow in righteousness. Feeding the hungry displays righteousness. They go together. 
Reading our Bible helps us to grow in righteousness. Sharing the gospel with lost souls displays righteousness. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, he says this, and this is a great quote. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. Let me read it again, because that's gold. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church, this is what we're here to do, to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. Chew on that. Chew on that for a while. How do we implement the victory of God? Through suffering love. And we can never do that without walking through suffering, which comes through discipline. So how does the Lord discipline produce the fruit of mission and ministry in us? Because our suffering allows us to build empathy for others. Sympathy is when we feel sorry for people going through something uh, that we've never gone through. Empathy allows us to connect to another's pain because of our own pain. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, says the great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. When someone says to somebody that's, that's hurting, oh, I know how you feel. Don't ever say that unless you know how that feels. I know you're trying to, to sympathize, but somehow that falls short, doesn't it? Because if you're the one that's suffering, you, you, your first thought is, is basically, you have no clue how I feel. It just falls flat. No, it's probably more truthful to say, I can't even imagine how you feel right now. But I'm here to go through it with you. There's an old saying that says, hurt people, hurt people. But what we find in the scriptures, God's discipline is meant to turn that into hurt people, help people. That's what we're after. Henry Nouwen again writes, Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risk of experiencing similar pains in his own heart and even losing his precious peace of mind? In short, who can take away suffering without entering it? Suffering love. We can best minister to one another, I think, when we, when we are willing to enter into another person's suffering. And when we're the one who's suffering, who knows what God's going to do with that? In 1991, there was a drunk driver veered across the road. He slammed into the car of, of Jerry Sitzer and his family. His mother, his wife, and his daughter were killed instantly. Three generations in a moment gone. Reflecting on the reason that might have happened in his book, A Grief Dis Disguise, he wrote this. He says, sometimes I wonder about how my own experience of loss will someday serve a greater purpose that I do not yet see or understand. My story may help to redeem a bad past or it may bring about a better future. Perhaps my own family's heritage has produced generations of absent and selfish fathers. And I have been given a chance to reverse the pattern. Perhaps people suffering catastrophic loss will someday look to our family for hope and inspiration. I don't know. Yet I choose to believe that God is working towards some ultimate purpose, even using my loss to that end. The fruit of ministry. Finally, I want you to consider the fruit of merriment. This is my favorite. In his epic book, The Brothers Karamazov, the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. 
that in the world's final, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it only not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Reminds me of what Sam said to Frodo at the end of the return of the king. When he said, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will someday be greater for having once been broken and lost. See, somehow the Lord's discipline is preparing us for heaven's joy. Eternal merriment, never-ending laughter, feasting, celebrating. How does that work? Well, Jonathan Edwards said that, that Christians are like cups that are dipped into God's ocean of love. And, and we will be filled to overflowing with the joy of the Lord. Got the picture? But then he says this. He says, some people are going to have larger cups than other people. And what makes the cup larger is the amount of suffering you endure in this world. Here's what he said. He writes, There is a different degree of happiness and glory in heaven. Everyone will be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And you read that and you go, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, 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 those of us with smaller vessels kind of feel like we're missing out. Well, he's more happier than I am. No, no, because pure love will replace envy. There will be no envy in heaven. We will rejoice in the happiness of others. Their happiness, the bigger their happiness, the greater ours. I love that. Right, So when we see that young missionary who was beaten and murdered for Christ rejoicing more than us in heaven, do you think we're going to be envious of that? No, their happiness is simply going to increase ours. So think of suffering and discipline in this life as kind of an upgrade in heaven, an enlarging of your joy cup. Think of suffering as an opportunity to biggie-size your joy. Because that's what it's about. And we got to remember this. we got to remember that even though our trial, through our trials, are difficult, that God is shepherding and using those things in our lives towards maturity, towards mutuality, towards ministry, and ultimately towards our merriment. We are, we are charged in this passage, to take the Lord's discipline, but not to take it in a way that's light-hearted. He tells us to endure hardship and to submit to the Father. Those are the three responses that we find here in the passage. Three appropriate responses to the Lord's discipline. In other words, don't shrug off God's discipline on one hand. Don't let it crush you on the other hand, but be trained by it. Be trained by it. Don't get bitter. Get better. Submit to God's gracious and tender care of you. See it for what it is. He is the shepherd. The good shepherd who watches over you. Who watches over your soul. Whose main concern is to love you. And to lead you to everlasting fields of his grace. You can trust him. You can trust that no matter what you're going through, that the Lord has a purpose in it. And it always is going to include your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the, the fact that you spin everything that Satan tries to use in our lives to harm us. That everything that this fallen world does to discourage us, to defeat us, that you have a way for us to defy it because you're using everything 
for our good and your glory. You're using everything like that. And Father, sometimes when they're in the midst of it, when the, when the pain is, is at its most intense, we, we have a difficult time seeing past that. But Father, we know from your word that we can endure because of the fact that you are using it. That you are enlarging our cup. And the bigger the cup, the greater the joy that's coming. What a victorious way to, to understand uh, life in this fallen world. That we're not just simply uh, gritting our teeth, trying to survive all of this mess till we finally get home. But that we can live even in the midst of it victoriously. Because our home is secure. So Father, help us to live this victorious Christian life. The victory belongs to Christ, not us. But Father, uh, may we walk in that victory. Uh, may we be an example to a world that is absolutely being torn apart by the mess right now. Make us different. Make us joyful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me if we have this time of decision. If there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you to, to step out and, uh, and do that. If you've never trusted in Christ, I invite you to come.